Good morning. It is great to be here. I'm loving this Wyoming weather, just in case you're wondering. I'm loving it. I want to make one quick plug, if you'll see a flyer in your bulletin, for a young man by the name of Tanner Jones. In the past, our church has had a connection with the Sheridan Arts Council, and we've brought in musicians. We're starting that up again, and we're having this young man come in. Uh, he played at Carnegie Hall. He's a national winner in the American Protégé Competition, 16 years old. I read this, and I thought, what have I done with my life? So Tanner Jordan, this Friday, 7 p.m., you can buy tickets at the door. Please come and check that out. Well, we are in the middle of an epidemic here in the United States of America, and I do not believe that that is an understatement. We've got a real problem in one particular area especially, and it's confounding old people and young people alike. And that thing which seems to be bothering just about everybody in some way can be summed up in this one word, anxiety. And I was looking at some articles this past week. And according to the New York Times, Americans are among the most anxious people on earth. Um, and that was compared to a number of different countries. In this same article, it says that Americans were significantly more anxious than residents of nations like Nigeria, Lebanon, and Ukraine. Now think about what some of those nations have been through. Think about the political turmoil and the wars that have gone there. And yet, we as Americans, in our affluence, still suffer with anxiety more so than these other countries. We spend billions of dollars every year on anti-anxiety meds and additional millions to fund research into the causes and cures for anxiety disorders. And then there was another article in Time Magazine, uh, and, and they devoted their cover story to teenage anxiety, and the headline was, The Kids Are Not All Right. And they found American teens are anxious, depressed, and overwhelmed. And this is what the article said, that today's adolescents are the post-9-11 generation, raised in an era of economic and national insecurity. They've never known a time when terrorism and school shootings weren't the norm. They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession, and perhaps most importantly, they hit puberty at a time when technology and social media were transforming society. And if you've ever seen any of the, the videos uh, of a guy named Simon Sinek. He's kind of devoted himself to understanding how social media impacts the teenage mind. And for a teenager, getting a like on Facebook is just about the equivalent of getting a hit of heroin in terms of what it does to your chemistry and, uh, and to your mind. And then one expert said, if you want to create an environment to churn out angsty people, he said, we've done it. And one teenager explained, we are the first generation that cannot escape our problems at all. We're all like little volcanoes. We're getting this constant pressure from our phones, from our relationships, from the way things are today. I believe if I were to take a poll of the people in this room right now, many of you right now are suffering with some level of anxiety. 
none of us are immune, and I believe this to be a daily battle that just about all of us have on some level. Uh, it can strike at any time. It can strike daily. And then I get to this verse, like the one we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, 6, where Paul says, and this is a command, do not be anxious about anything. And sometimes I hear, I hear things from Paul, I'm like, are you serious about anything? So what we're going to explore today is, well, how do you do that? How do we overcome anxiety? The passage we'll be in today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. These are probably verses that you're familiar with. As a matter of fact, Amazon has looked at their e-readers, and for people who have a copy of the Bible on, uh, on a Kindle or an iPad, they said, these verses that we're looking at today are underlined more times than any other verses in the Bible. If that tells you something about how people are suffering, including Christians, with anxiety... So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Rejoice in the world in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. So today we're going to approach this subject of anxiety, and I want to look at it first as the problem of anxiety. We'll talk about what the word means. We're going to talk about a little word history. It's very telling about this word we use, anxiety, and the problem of it. And how do you differentiate between concern and anxiety? Then secondly, we're going to look at four choices that we can make to overcome anxiety. So the problem of anxiety, then four choices to overcome anxiety. Uh, I know I gave a lot of statistics, but frankly, I don't have to look far past my own heart to get some sense of what anxiety is. It's something that I've struggled with. I've struggled with anxiety to the point of, of having chest pains. I've struggled with anxiety to the point of I've, I've even experienced a panic attack before. So it's real. I believe it to be real. I believe it to be something that we can struggle with on a daily basis. Not only that, but just this past week I found myself getting anxious. I just saw there's this thing. How many of you have heard of the, the Momo Challenge? Have you heard of this thing? Yeah, it, especially if you've got young kids and it was on the news it's this deal where there's some guy out there who's putting out these fake videos geared to kids. And when, when the, the, the idea is the parent would turn this video on for the kid to watch, walk away, and then this scary face pops up. 
uh, telling the child they need to harm themselves. And I thought, my gosh, how many times we, you know, we've let Dan, uh, Landry watch something like Daniel Tiger and then did this thing come up? Was he affected by it? And I found myself getting all worked up. We've got to get him in counseling. We've got to get him therapy. We've hosed him, honey. We've messed the boy up. Well, we tried for two and a half years, and there we go. Let's move on to the next thing. So I get it. Anxiety is real. Uh, and I know it from my own heart. So I want to talk uh, about this word anxiety itself for just a minute. It comes from this, I know that's a little hard to read. Uh, it, from, it comes from that Greek word you see in the very middle, merimnao. Uh, and that is this Greek word, and it means to be concerned about. But it can also mean undue concern about something. And it's typically translated worry or worry or worrying. It can have some other translations as well. But usually it's about being worried about something. So I did a little more investigating, and I wanted to know, well, where did we get this word worry from? And it has a very interesting past. The word itself, it comes from an old English word, weirgen, and it literally means to strangle. Now, that's the Old English meaning of it. And then, as time went on, the Middle English meaning, worrying means to grasp by the throat with the teeth and lacerate. It's actually a word, that, it's a word they would use to describe a wolf that was sinking its teeth into the throat of a sheep. Now, just think about that for a second. How did our ancestors view worry? That this is what the word came from. Does it sound like it could do some damage? Does it sound like a dangerous thing? Uh, something that we don't really want in our life? So, uh, and then just a brief online search of the Mayo Clinic turned up all these medical issues that can come from worry and anxiety. And I was starting to feel a little anxious looking at it, so I, I wasn't <laughs> going to go through that list of, of things that worry and anxiety can do to you. Now, is there reason to have legitimate concern about what my uh, son is looking at on the internet? Yeah. Yeah. There's reason for legitimate concern about that. I do need to be involved. I do need to see what he's seeing. So the next question is, well, when does genuine concern turn into something like a sinful worry? There's a professor at Moody University by the name of McNeely. He's a professor of theology and hermeneutics, and he's, too, done some investigating into this idea of anxiety. And this is what he came up with in regard to that subject. <coughs> he said, worry is concern that is separated from the grace, power, love, and wisdom of God. It's concern that we address in our own strength. It's concern that we handle by thinking that we are facing life alone, and we have to deal with our problems alone without God's help. Do you see the difference here? When we experience worry, it's as though we are continuing down life's path as though God doesn't even exist. That it's all on my shoulders. That with human limitations, I have to solve God-sized problems. That's when we cross over into this thing called worry. 
Uh, now, the reason I really like that distinction because it shows this role that faith plays. By the way, Professor McNeely himself uh, admittedly is a big worrier. He says he struggles with this. This is idea that we're going to try to go it on our own. So this is the problem of anxiety and worry. That's the difference between concern and worry. And I hope that's, that's clear to you. There is a difference. So then how can we make choices uh, to overcome anxiety? And, and I want to be... I want to be very upfront in saying that I don't want you in any way to feel guilt this morning about having anxiety. Sometimes Christians have this, this, this two-pronged spear that comes at them. Not only are they anxious, but then they carry this guilt complex about having anxiety. So I want you to be able to release yourself from some of that guilt today. This is something I think that we probably all struggle with to some level. And there's always grace, right? We're, we're depending on grace, not how well we can get rid of anxiety in our lives. And I also don't want you to feel guilt if, you do, if you're on an antidepressant. And hear me now, I'm not telling you to get off antidepressants, that I'm going to give you a, a magic bullet today that's going to take that away. I think it's possible that as we get into this, as we look at the scriptures, some of you may find that you don't need it as you practice what we're, we're talking about. But I don't want to go as far as to say, quit your anti-anxiety meds. I'm not saying that either. Uh, I want to jump into this passage now. And starting at verse 4, one of the first things that Paul does is he makes this command. And it is a command. It's an, an imperative. Now, he had just finished talking about those fellow strugglers with him. As a matter of fact, in the very beginning of chapter 4, he talks about a, a problem that popped up. Uh, in the church between two of the ladies uh, and encourage them to find unity in the Lord. He talks about a friend, Clement, to, to encourage those ladies. And he talks about his fellow strugglers, fellow Christians whose names were written in the, the Lamb's Book of Life, the Heavenly Registry. So he talks about those believers. And then he gets to this command. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, Rejoice. He's commanding them to have joy always. Now, I want to quickly remind you, I'd shared a, a definition of joy over Christmas. And this, I found this in a guy who'd written his doctoral <laughs> dissertation on the topic of joy. And he said that joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the universe. The deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the the universe. And what Paul is saying here is that you can choose this deep abiding assurance. Uh, and then there's another definition I want to share with you. This comes from Kay Warren. Um, she's the wife of Pastor Rick Warren. If you've ever read The Purpose Driven Life, this is his wife. She wrote a book called Choose Joy. And this was her definition of joy. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. Uh, now you, you may be thinking, yeah, right. Yeah, right. In all things. Now it's interesting. You know, the opposite of joy... Uh, is not sadness. I want to make a firm distinction between joy and happiness, okay? 
Happiness is an emotion that we can feel when things are generally going our way. Joy is not that. Look at these words that keep popping up. Assurance, abiding assurance that God is in control. So the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. The opposite of joy is what the person experiences who doesn't have faith. A lack of purpose. A lack of guidance. So, um, Kay Warren, it's interesting. You know, she and her family are no strangers to pain. And if you know their story, you know that their son, actually the year after she wrote this book, Choose Joy, their son committed suicide. And I saw an interview once with Rick Warren talking about what that moment was like, what that morning was like when they suspected this is what had happened. And this is what he said. He said, the night that Matthew died, we were standing outside the front of his house with the doors locked. Their son Matthew, by the way, had suffered with mental illness uh, for a very long time. Uh, we, were, we were waiting for the police to come and break down the door, and we feared the inevitable. We were, we were standing, Kay and I, holding each other, sobbing. Kay was wearing a necklace that had two words on it, choose joy. And she said it out loud. She said out loud, choose joy. I looked at her and thought, are you kidding me? How do you choose joy when your son on the other side of that wall has probably just taken his life? And then those last three words, he said, but that's faith. Joy is no magic eraser for grief. You will still go through grief when you've lost someone. <coughs> However, joy is a response during grief. And we see that in the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, by the way, Jesus would have known perfect joy his entire existence on earth, and he never knew anxiety. He never had a single anxious moment. And yet when his friend Lazarus died, he showed up knowing that he was going to be resurrected, and what did he do? He wept. He wasn't immune to the pain of life. But in the midst of pain of life, in the midst of hurt, you can still choose joy. Even verbalizing it out loud uh, like Kay Warren did. So in that moment, when you've got that choice to make, in that moment when something has been presented to you, no matter how horrific it may be, you can choose in that moment not to be overwhelmed with anxiety. You're still going to grieve, but you can still acknowledge God is in control of this. This did not happen outside of his notice. He's in charge. You've got to talk to your heart. And you've got to talk to your heart and you've got to assure your own heart that God is in control. That's where anxiety is springing out of. So the first thing you choose is joy. The first thing you choose is joy. And then we move on to this next verse, uh, verse 5. And Paul writes, let everyone see your gentleness, or he uses the word reasonableness here in this, this verse. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this is the outworking of joy in the life of the believer. Um, this is to show someone that you are gentle. That's what that word reasonableness is referring to. And, it, and the word uh, 
being used here is epiekes in Greek. And it, it refers to someone who has no need to take revenge. It's someone who's known by being courteous and tolerant. Now, what's interesting is there's a time in my life that I really associated uh, gentleness probably more with women than men. Yes, I know. That's probably a very sexist thing to say. But I did. I thought that gentleness wasn't necessarily a trait of masculinity. But then I thought, started thinking about that. The finest men that I have ever known are some of the most gentle men that I have ever known. Guys that don't have something to prove. Guys that don't have to act rough and tough to get their point across. So I think gentleness is a very masculine adjective. I think it's something that we need to embrace. They were humble, men with nothing to prove. So this gentle spirit that Paul's talking about, it can also have an impact on anxiety. And there was a guy that wrote a book called Worry Less, Live More, a guy by the name of Robert Morgan, and he explains it in this way. He says, some people create anxiety for themselves and for others by disagreeableness, by their sharp tongues, by their opinionated personalities, and by their irritable spirits. When you're upset, you upset others, which piles on layers of stress like wet blankets. If you're angry at home, you'll upset your marriage. If you're harsh at work, you'll have more conflicts. To reduce anxiety, then, develop a gentle spirit. Again, this is going to have an impact uh, on how you live day to day. You know, there's going to be moments when you're tempted to think to yourself, if I would just lash out at them for this, God feels so much better. You're usually only creating more problems for yourself when you choose to respond that way. So embrace this gentleness. Let this be how people know you. Not as a hothead, not as someone with a temper, not as someone who's primarily known by sharp opinions or a sharp tongue, but by this gentle <coughs> spirit. So the second choice there is gentleness. Choose to be gentle in times when you could be harsh. This is actually one of the fruits of the Spirit and should be evident in the life of the believer. And then Paul moves on, and he proclaims there that the Lord is at hand. So there's a reason to be gentle. It's because God is coming back soon. He's going to set things right. He's going to be back. No need for revenge. No need for a harsh attitude. All is going to be made right very soon. So the Lord is at hand, and then he moves on, and there's that phrase, do not be anxious about anything. So there's the goal, right? There's the goal to not be anxious about anything. Um, now, take heart, because I, you can find this discouraging. If not being anxious was just a natural reaction, they wouldn't have made it this commandment in the Bible. Okay? So if you find yourself anxious, okay, there's a reason they put it in here. It's something that doesn't come naturally. Uh, that doesn't mean we, we don't live a life of concern. I mean, we've got bills to pay. We've got people to care for. But again, we don't want to cross that line into this anxiety. And notice that the Lord leaves no open doors here. There's no opportunities to say, well, don't worry about anything. Well, accept that. Whew. No. He's saying don't worry about anything. Nothing is worth it. 
Again, it's dealing with God-sized problems with these human limitations that we have. So what do we choose instead of worrying? And how do we deal with these God-sized problems? Our attention now turns to prayer. Something we frankly probably can't talk about too much. And Paul says it here in verse 6, Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, he says, Let your requests be made known to God. And here he uses supplication. Let those requests be made known to God. Now, notice he says everything. That's over and against anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Every detail. Every area that you need help in, he's saying pray about. Um, and then he presents this series of words that we need to deal with. And the first is prayer itself. Now, Paul would have known the words of Christ. He would have known the Sermon on the Mount. And he knows that in the Sermon on the Mount, we're told not to worry. Jesus told his followers, do not worry. It's not going to add a single day to your life. And he has a long exposition on that subject whenever he's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So there we have the words nothing and everything in contrast with each other. So in everything, God says to pray. Now the word prayer itself means to approach a deity, uh, to approach God. And I hope that we never take it for granted that every time we close our eyes and pray, we are praying to the Almighty God of the universe, without whom none of us would be here, without whom none of us would continue breathing, the earth would stop spinning. This is who we are invited to step into a conversation with. As a matter of fact, he tells us to, to talk to him. And not only that, but when Jesus was commanding, was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, What? Father, who are in heaven. Holy is your name. So when we step into this attitude of prayer, start by remembering who it is you're talking to. The God of the universe. Almighty, all-powerful. The one with whom we're going to be spending eternity with. And we call him Dad. That's the relationship. That's how much he loves us. So it's prayer. And then we petition God. And this word supplication is used. This idea of God supplying our needs. That is to say that when we earnestly pray, we're praying, asking God to have our deepest desires met. He's not always going to answer it the way we want him to. There's no promise that we're going to get everything we ask for. But that's not how we pray. We put everything out there. We trust God to supply what we need. What do you need freedom from? What are you feeling? What's some nagging uh, thing in your heart that you just want to go away? Lift that up to God. Trust Him with it. Give it over. Don't try to handle it on your own. God, help me be a good dad. Help me be a good father or mother or employee. Whatever it may be. Make it known to God. And then it says to do these things with thanksgiving. <coughs> now, I think this is where things become incredibly counterintuitive. Because when we're coming to God with our problems, he says to do so with this attitude of thanksgiving. 
That is Christian. Paul is saying this, having been tortured, being put in a Roman prison, you were flogged before you were put in there, it was almost impossible to sleep, and yet he says, have this attitude of being thankful. This is by faith. You know, this is by faith saying, God, I trust you that you are in control, and you are bringing this into my life for good reasons, no matter what it may be. And we really have no better example of this in the Old Testament than Daniel. When Daniel, he was a, he was a prophet of God, and he was living in Babylon. He'd been taken captive there, so he was a, a citizen of heaven, much like us, but having to live in, in a different place for a while. And in Babylon, King Darius had said, if anybody prays to anybody or anything other than me, you're going to get thrown into a lion's den. As soon as that decree went out, as soon as it hits the streets, well, how did Daniel respond? Was he wringing his hands? Was he scared? This is what he did. This is Daniel 6.10. When Daniel realized that a written decree had been issued, he entered his home where the windows in his upper room opened toward Jerusalem. Three times daily he was kneeling and offering prayers and thanks to his God just as he had been accustomed to do previously. What's he doing? He's thanking God. That's the attitude we're told to have. I don't know how life is going to turn out. No matter what, regardless of circumstances, we're told to be thankful. We are trusting God. Whatever endeavor you are in the middle of right now, if it is a total failure... You can trust that God had put you there to use it to take you on to whatever the next thing is going to be. I didn't. Let me tell you, I moved to Wyoming. You bet I was anxious. <laughs> I don't know how this thing is going to turn out. Lord, are these people going to like me? Guy up here talking hillbilly? I don't know. <laughs> but you know what you trust. And if it's a total fail, he is preparing me for whatever the next thing is. That's Thanksgiving. Trusting God with whatever the circumstances may be. It's this attitude to have. And then in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. The opposite of anxiety is peace. We don't have it all figured out. And peace comes because prayer is an expression of trust. Praying is showing a 100% dependency on God. I've struggled with prayer off and on in my life. God, if you're going to do what you're going to do, what's, what's the point of me praying? Nope. That's not how you look at it. We come to God because we are 100% dependent on God. We're not going to have it all figured out. So what do we do? We're thankful and we're trusting. And then what does that peace do? It says it will, it will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. The view of hearts to the Hebrew is like this seatbed of emotion. It's where you feel stuff. That's the heart that he's talking about. And in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's that place where life flows out. It's typically where most of us make our decisions. We all want to think that we're all cerebral, right? That we're making decisions in our mind. Just about every decision is emotional. 
And you're making it in this place called your heart. This seatbed of emotion. So when we go on vacation, when we, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, that's made down here on the heart level. I'm pointing to my stomach. This, this is where I feel stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe for you it's more up here. I, anyway. Um, but this is also where we can be strangled by anxiety. This is where anxiety can get us. And it is the heart that is driven by anxiety that's going to choose some way to cope with that. It's going to choose food or lust or it's going to act out in some way. It could be alcohol. But however, you're looking for some way to cope with what's going on emotionally. And this peace will guard your hearts and your minds. This peace that surpasses human understanding. That means that the mind in and of itself is not going to fully grasp this peace. Um, you, you know, if you were going to go and you were going to go see a secular counselor about an issue you have with anxiety, this is what's going to happen. They're going to give you tips and techniques to try to control that anxiety, certain exercises you can do and things. However, they're not going to get down to the heart level because this stems from an issue of faith and belief. Uh, the greatest antidote to anxiety is based on trust in Christ and a relationship with the Almighty. That has to do with belief. This has to do with faith. So what's the next thing you choose? You choose to pray. You choose prayer. It's this trust that God is in control and we are dependent on him. Then Paul moves on in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Wow. Okay, so how do I come up with something that fits in all these categories? Right? That's the challenge. What meets all this criteria? Um... And there's a lot of wonderful adjectives there. And they're summed up there at the end, described as things that are excellent and things that are worthy of praise. Well, how many things are actually excellent and worthy of praise? What's going to slide into that category? But this speaks to everything I'm allowing into my head. Am I letting in things that are untrue? You know, uh, something someone says about me out there who doesn't even know me that well. Is that what I'm going to embrace as truth? Is that what I'm going to let identify me? Things that come up on social media. Uh, th there's a lot of ways that people find to cope with anxiety and what we're talking about. But this is what Paul is saying. Control what comes into your head. Tim Keller addresses this way of thinking. And this is, this is how he puts it. I, this is a longer quote, but hang with it. Believe me, it's, it's worth it. He says, I've always been impressed by the contrast between contemporary strategies for coping with stress and Paul's counsel for how to get inner peace. Modern approaches tell you to take time off, get a better work-leisure balance, to block negative and guilty thoughts to exercise and learn relaxation techniques. Modern books never tell stressed people. Listen to this. Think about the big questions of life. Where are we from? Where are we going? What is the meaning of life? 
In effect, Paul's saying, think. God made the world and we turn from him. But he's coming back to save us. And someday he will put everything right and we will live with him forever. If you really understood and believed that, nothing could get you down for long. So think. If you are, dis if you are discouraged, think about and take hold of Christian doctrine until it puts some health and peace into you. I want to go back a couple of weeks to a sermon I preached. And I threw out two big words at you guys. One was orthodoxy. The word simply means right teaching. It means right belief. And I said that that right belief, right teaching, will lead to something called orthopraxy. That simply means living right. But it starts over here with right belief. You know, we could talk all day about how to change behaviors, how to change behaviors. But, but you know, in the end, you're going to start with a belief system. What do you believe is true about you? Do you believe what God says about you? Starting there and then moving over here. So what is it that's true and excellent and all those things? It's God. It's what he says about me. That I'm a dearly loved child. That you can call me dad. That you can talk to me anytime you want to. This is the truth. So to get there in a healthy way, you've got to start over here. What are you letting into your mind? Are you letting the truth of God into your mind? Or just whatever happens to, to pop up? So putting this all together, overcome anxiety by choosing joy, gentleness, prayer, and then finally, worthy thoughts. The truth that God has given us. And in closing, I want to tell you a story about a, a four-year-old girl who had just moved. She actually just moved into a new home. This is a true story. Moved to a new home in Colorado, and the parents had all the inspections done, but uh, she wasn't convinced that the house was free of monsters. So she found a police officer, and he said, Sir, I need you to come to my house and verify that there's no monsters. So what's the police officer do? He goes to the house. He goes to the house. Now, she had checked under the couch, but he looked under the cushions to make sure there were no monsters there. As a matter of fact, they stepped outside, looked in the front yard to make sure there was no monster activity going on. And as silly as it sounds, the mother said, that made my little girl so confident and fearless that there were no monsters there that were going to bring her harm. You know, as silly as it may seem, you know, I'm sure that when we come to God with our fears and our concerns, it's probably a lot like that little girl sitting that officer on a monster hunt. But you know what? We can bring everything to God. And he's there to give us a sense of confidence, a sense of assurance. He's concerned for us, and he can give us hope for the future. Please pray with me. God, we love you, we trust you. Lord, we struggle with anxiety, and none of us are immune. God, help us to put these things into practice. Help us day by day to take a one issue at a time, Lord, and to put into practice all of the things that you are teaching us here in your word. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.